and welcome to part four of 20 Years On, the series where I look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st in 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and this week we discuss how the administration and civil service have changed since British colonial days. But before Joseph Wong, former secretary for the civil service, and Anson Chan, former acting chief executive, get their teeth stuck into more recent developments, novelist and retired civil servant Elizabeth Wong recalls her LegCo days way back in 1997. And she goes even further back to the halcyon days of colonial governor Murray McLehose. They were the good old days, I would say. I was very lucky. I joined uh, uh, the Hong Kong government, the colonial government, in 1969, right after the Hong Kong riots, you know. And uh, I remember at the time the governor was Sir David Trench, and uh, he was saying that he wanted to communicate with the people. I was one of the people, you see, and I was very impressed by his uh, stated objective. He said he wanted to cultivate grassroots. I was one of the, you know, you were a grassroots, grassroots people. Yes, and he wanted to establish in the, in the jargon of those days uh, interpersonal uh, relationship or dialogue with the people. So I said, well, that's my kind of government. So I applied and I sat for the exam. We had to go through various screening processes and I joined the administrative service of the Hong Kong government. And right after that, um, Mary McLehose, Hong Kong's 25th governor, came to Hong Kong and he was a great reformer. And I love change. <laughs> I like uh, new things. And I, I, I um, liked his vision for Hong Kong. Which, which was? Which was, he established the Hong Kong identity, I would say. He introduced social reform. Uh, for the first time in Hong Kong, we had a public assistance scheme to help the poor people which is the beginning of the current, you know, big um, uh, scheme to help the poor. But in those days, it was called the Public Assistance Scheme. And then he also introduced the uh, free first six-year primary school free education. And then that really started the social reform for Hong Kong. And he set up the, um, the music office which I also headed um, towards the, um, the end of his service. He left, I think, in 1982. Mm -hmm. The music office was set up in 1977. And uh, the first music administrator was um, um, Gordon Seal. I was number two. And we had a whale of a time, you know. Did you have a um, lot of... Autonomy? Were you able to do what you wanted oh, to do? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, I was never conscious of any of my counterparts in England. You know, it's supposed to be a colonial government, but nobody bothered to instruct me. I had to do my own thing. I like change. I like to do my own thing. So when I was music administrator, um, I took Hong Kong musicians to places like Cyprus, Israel, <laughs> London, Australia, you know, and we were sponsored by the British Airways. So there was a lot of hard work, of course, because you don't take kids around the world 
without working very hard. First of all, you have to make sure that they are safe, they are properly housed and properly fed, that sort of thing. What, in your opinion, were the best things about the colonial service? The best things about the colonial service, um, I would say, it's not because it was introducing democracy, you know, but it was um, trying to help the Hong Kong people by identifying what Hong Kong people wanted. Um, so they really did listen to the people? I think so. It's not a... Uh, we, I, I'm not very conscious of the so-called consultative documents, you know, but I am aware that um, uh, certainly at the time that I remember, the governor always listened to the people uh, on their walkabouts, you know, not covered by the media, <laughs> I might add, um, just with us, you know, we went to various schools and we introduced music for the millions, you know. It's all done locally. So it was done on an informal but, but very comprehensive basis of talking uh, yeah, to people. Yeah, it was a benevolent kind of government, you know. Um, I think it felt for the people. Certainly people liked the government at the time because I remember walking around with um, uh, Maclehoes. People were really trying to jump up to shake his hand because he's a very tall guy. He was a very tall guy, you mm. see. So people were very, very... Um, I, I could feel it was genuine. It's, right. not, a, uh, it's not one of those... Uh, set up things, you know, for the media. Right. Now, did that continue until 97? When Chris Patton came, he made a point of not telling the media, uh, but I accompanied him on his walkabouts, you know, to families and all that. He wanted to find out what people wanted without letting um, the media know. So there was a lot of hard work being done behind the scenes. So he was prepared to go out to the, go to the people. Oh, and we talk had to, to because um, he. Uh, we had to brief the governor. Uh, I had a lot of autonomy, high degree of autonomy on my own. I used to do my own thing. Um, I was the one who introduced the senior uh, senior citizens card because I thought, well, Hong Kong should have a senior citizens card. I was in my forties. Now I'm the beneficiary. Elizabeth Wong known as Libby. That sounded like a fairy tale, where the people and government liked and trusted each other. I met up with former Secretary of the Civil Service, Joseph Wong, to hear how it all changed since 1997, in broad terms at least. In broad terms, I think the uh, handover in 1997 was a very smooth one. All the uh, former colonial secretaries became overnight uh, the, uh, the secretaries of the new administration uh, with some changes in the titles but the, but the jobs remain the same uh, the system of government remains the same uh, the civil service system remains the same uh, the sea change uh, really came about in 2002 when the then chief executive Tong Chi Hua introduced uh, what was known as an accountability system, which in effect is a ministerial system. Uh, under this system, uh, Tong uh, has uh, uh, created a new layer of 
ministers who are not civil servants above the former civil service secretaries. Uh, and that was really a big change uh, to the civil service. So some civil servant uh, secretaries like myself uh, change over to become political ministers. Others uh, revert to become permanent secretaries. So what did that mean in practical terms? In practical terms, uh, it uh, it means, first of all, uh, that the top layer uh, of uh, government uh, are now run by political appointees, not career civil servants. And these political appointees, uh, their term of office coincide with the chief executive. That's the first point. So five years. Five years maximum. Uh, and the more important point is they have to become politically accountable, uh, which means uh, that if anything goes wrong, uh, the chief executive uh, can ask them uh, to, to go away, to resign, or they themselves voluntarily to uh, give up the jobs, unlike in the past where civil servants have permanent uh, tenure, and even if they do something wrong, it's very difficult to, to, uh, to get rid of them, uh, put it in a, in a, in a, in a crude way. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point is, obviously, it allows the chief executive uh, much more flexibility uh, to recruit outside uh, people uh, who, who may be very good in their private practice, uh, in their own careers, to come into the, uh, the, the administration uh, in order to inject new ideas, uh, new blood uh, into the, in the government. Right. In practice, did it work that way? In practice, I think it worked for a while. The first term uh, of uh, political appointments, uh, I think, was, was very good. Uh, we have very good people uh, coming from uh, from the outside. Such as, who would you say? Such as, you, you, for example, Anthony Lowe, you have Fred Ma, and then you have uh, Arthur Lee and so on. At least these are the people uh, who have their own uh, reputations and careers mm. uh, in, in the private sector. In the real world. In the real world. And who came to, uh, uh, to government. Uh, to offer a new perspective. Mm. But then after the first term... Uh, so that would have been 2003? 2003, no, 2003. Yeah, 2003. 2003. 2003. Mm. Uh, and then after the, uh, the first term, uh, the, the, the government's difficulty or the chief executive's difficulty um, uh, in the second term of, of Tong, and then, and then afterwards, uh, in uh, Donald Zhang's uh, term and even Siwan's term, uh, it became more and more difficult to get good people mm. from outside. Why was that? Did they not want to join the government? Uh, I suppose many of them uh, have found the kitchen too hot. <laughs> uh, that's the first point. How, what do you mean? Uh, what do I mean? is that the, uh, the political 
structure in government uh, was not able uh, to support a strong ministerial system. Right. For example, uh, the fact that the government did not have a majority uh, uh, in the legislative council makes it very difficult uh, for the secretaries to deliver uh, the policies. Mm. Now, if you have people who have been very successful in the private sector, who really want to uh, to come to the government in order to to make things change, get things done, and get things done, and if they found they couldn't do that, uh, then obviously uh, it would take a lot of interest out of them. Very frustrating. Yeah, that's the first. Uh, it, would, it would like the first uh, uh, problem with the uh, accountability system. The second problem is that uh, the first term political appointees are very well aware uh, of the conditions uh, behind the the system, which mm. is you have to be accountable. Mm. Uh, if anything goes wrong, uh, don't try to make excuses. <laughs> uh, either you make amends if we cannot, you apologize if it's not, not enough, then you go. Mm. Like any other ministerial system, anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, but uh, and indeed, uh, a few people, uh, a few ministers in the first term, did accept this this uh, this condition, and did apologise, and some did leave. Who did we lose? We lose Anthony Lau over the Lexus episode. Uh, we 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 lose uh, 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 Doctor Yeung, right. uh, the the health secretary. Oh yes, and uh, and Regina Yip. Uh, this was all over the 2003 events and yes, SARS and Article 23. Right, yeah. right. And uh, so, in fact, uh, Hong Kong people actually saw that these are the people who who, who are accountable. So the know? bucks did stop with them. Did stop with them. Yeah. But after the, sec- the, the, first, the first term, the second term, and, and, and then the third term, then frankly, uh, uh, it has deteriorated. Mm, mm. Uh, first of all, apologies. Mm. Uh, then maybe more apologies. Mm. And yet people do not see the ministers uh, are willing uh, to act like ministers mm. and accept responsibility if anything goes wrong. And you see a lot of the recent uh, batch of, of ministers trying also excuses mm. to defend their, their their wrongdoings and their and their and their and the criticism against integrity mm. and, and falling back to the very basic defense that you know that there's no evidence against me mm. uh, so I've not committed any crime and that's not the the, the spirit <laughs> that's not that standard people expect of, of ministers so uh, and, and coupled with the fact as I mentioned earlier that we are not really getting uh, a lot of people, never mind good people, mm. from the private sector. Uh, and you can see from the very recent uh, announcement of Carol Lam's cabinet yes. that she only uh, was able uh, to retain uh, the, the old blood from the previous administration plus one new one, uh, in, in Dr. Lo uh, mm. uh, the rest are, are ex-civil servants. Yes. So uh, you can see, in a way, we're really 
making a full circle and going back to uh, where we uh, began. To, to where we began. <laughs> so let, let's talk about where we are now with that. What does that mean for the Carrie Lam administration? Will it just be the CY Leung administration with a different hat on, or or was her, were her hands tied, or what happened? I don't think Carrie Lam uh, would like to carry on CY style. Right. That's for sure. Uh, the difficulty is uh, uh, she has got a team uh, uh, who were used to doing things the old way. Yes. And she has also got uh, new secretaries except Lord uh, Ziguang, who were civil servants, uh, who really need to raise themselves up to a high political level. Joseph Wong. I visited Anson Chan at her home in London last week. Anson was acting chief executive and at the forefront of the administration until she resigned in 2003. Believed by many to be the best chief executive we never had, she looks back and forward with candor. I think a great deal has changed. I thought one of the best legacies that the British left behind was a genuinely meritocratic, politically neutral civil service uh, with a set of core values that everybody embraced, a regard for due process, a high standard of probity, uh, and uh, the recruitment and promotion of um, public officials based on their ability and their performance. What we're seeing today in the civil service is it's definitely no longer meritocratic. It's increasingly being politicized. Uh, there seems to be no system for doing things within the service, much less regard for due process. Uh, and the thing that worries everybody, and you see it reflected in the standard of governance, which clearly is deteriorating, is that today the main criteria for considering the recruitment and promotion of public officials seem to be based on loyalty rather than ability. Uh, that certainly does not make for a capable, efficient civil service. So when you say loyalty, you mean loyalty to the leadership? Yes, loyalty to the leadership, people who are regarded in the eyes of the liaison office and Beijing as being patriotic, uh, and people who will toe the line and do what they're told. Hmm. Now, if we look back to the early days, uh, to post-97, what was it like coming out of the colonial service and into this brave new world? What were the immediate changes? There were no immediate changes. Certainly in the four years that I remained as Chief Secretary for Administration, things went on as usual. Uh, yes, there was a change of flag, and we have a Chief Executive instead of the Governor. But the functioning of the public service remained exactly as it was. And this, after all, was what the basic law sought to preserve. Clearly, at the time, uh, Mr. Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues regarded the civil service as being highly efficient, very well respected and supported by the community. And they were very keen to ensure that this system continued, hence you have what you have in the basic law. Mm. But that has rapidly changed, and the change has been particularly marked in recent years under Mr. C.Y. Leung. 
And what changes do you specifically find egregious among, amongst what's happened? First of all, that you pick people who you regard as being uh, one of us. So it doesn't matter whether you have ability, doesn't matter whether you have credibility or standing in the community, so long as you do what you are told. Um, I also think that um, the introduction of the political appointment system, the so-called accountability system in 2002, was uh, quite the wrong way to go. In fact, it was because of this... This that, was the ministerial yes, system. Yes, it was because of this that I decided to retire one year earlier than I had uh, originally um, mm. agreed. Uh, in the circumstances prevailing at that time, you have a chief executive who is not popularly elected and therefore lacks uh, legitimacy. Uh, and I felt that it would be wrong to give the power to appoint the top dozen posts within the civil service to one person without the necessary checks and balances that a genuine election would have provided. I also knew that um, uh, if you were going to go down this road, there's a lot that you need to do, particularly in terms of uh, establishing trust between the political appointees and the public officials. Uh, which clearly did not happen. And everybody can see that since the introduction of this system in 2002, it has turned out to be an abysmal failure. And this is why today there is such concern about the deteriorating quality of governance in Hong Kong. So what's to be done about it, do you think? What's to be done? I suppose it is too late to uh, go back. Therefore, you must try and make the best of a scheme that was fundamentally flawed from the beginning. Uh, I think you can salvage something from the system if only you will um, pick people based on ability. Hmm. Uh, no ability, you cannot deliver good services and the government will always be held in poor regard. So you need to pick talents. You need to establish trust, because with trust there will be cooperation between the political appointees and career civil servants. I think career civil servants are only too glad and anxious to play their part in improving governance, but they need to have good role models to look up to. The ministers need to provide the necessary leadership. Yes, and that seems to be lacking now. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I think it's fair to say that uh, you were regarded as the, the greatest chief executive we never had. Uh, <laughs> and also that you were, uh, you were acting chief executive for a while. So that would have given you hands-on direct contact with Beijing. How did you experience them and their attitude to Hong Kong? Well, actually, in the initial few years, we did not have all that much contact with Beijing. Uh, that was a good thing because um, I observed that in those four years, neither Beijing officials nor the New China News Agency, uh, which is the predecessor of the current liaison office mm. and, and was headed by Mr. Jiang Enzhu, he was very scrupulous in observing uh, the, the basic law, one country, two systems, a high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong, people ruling Hong Kong. He never by word or deed stepped over the line, nor did Beijing officials. 
So do you think, as Chris Patton said, that um, the wheels will fall off, not because of Beijing, but because of Hong Kong people giving freedom away inch by inch? I think that's, I paraphrase. I think that's very true. The, um, the dismal prospect we currently face is that not only are Hong Kong people giving away a high degree of autonomy and inviting interference from the liaison office and from Beijing, but we see a sovereign power that increasingly does not care about what Hong Kong people think. They are determined to tighten their grip uh, on Hong Kong. They make great play about how a small number of people are agitating for independence, and they use that uh, as an excuse for the need to clamp down even harder on uh, Hong Kong. But if you continue to chip away at one country, two systems, and particularly undermine judicial independence, and our basic rights and freedoms, then Hong Kong will very soon cease to be able to play this unique role that we currently play vis-a-vis the mainland. Uh, people often point out, well, you know, the last 20 years, 20 years have gone by very well. We remain economically very vibrant. We continue to be China's premier financial and services center, and we continue to play a very indispensable role in the overall long-term growth of our country. But what they forget is that the economic vitality rests on the foundation of the rule of law and protection of basic rights and freedoms. In other words, our ability to maintain our lifestyle and our core values. Do you see anyone in the current administration really sticking up for Hong Kong properly? Well, I cannot recollect when was the last time that any senior official stood up in public to defend one country, two systems, even in the face of blatant interferences from the liaison office and from Beijing officials. It has to be defended by government officials. I remember you know, doing it myself in the early years after the handover. Because let's face it, even though it's 20 years, the fact is that one country, two systems uh, goes into uncharted territory. Nobody quite knows how far this framework called one country, two systems will stretch. Mm. And it seemed to me to be particularly important in the initial years after the handover for Hong Kong, the SAR government, to see how far this envelope can go. And you won't know whether Beijing is agreeable or not until you've tried it. But to keep ourselves restricting and making this envelope smaller and smaller as the years go by does not serve Hong Kong well. No, so we've never pushed the envelope, really. We've stayed well inside the edges, haven't we? Yes, increasingly so in recent years. Anson Chan. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when I catch up with Karen Luard, Nay Penlington, or KP, as she was known in the naughty 90s when she was queen of the South China Morning Post social pages, long before social media was even dreamt of. Do you remember the